Welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast about the experiences we have with a glass in hand. From the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're going to talk about America's preeminent, well, maybe preeminent wine region, Napa Valley. Um, and we're going to be joined in a few minutes here by the wine writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, Esther Mobley. But Adam, first I want to start by talking, you and I both uh, fairly recently have taken trips to Napa Valley. And you know, I'm always struck when I'm there at how different a wine region Napa is from anywhere else in the U.S. I mean, Sonoma can be that way, but really the the sheer tourism and the 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 industry that surrounds Napa Valley that is only sort of vaguely wine related just always takes my takes me aback a little bit. I don't know. Did you have a, a similar sense? This, you this time you went was I think your first visit, right? It was my first visit. So yeah, so I have been involved in wine in some form or fashion for the last, I don't know, 10 plus years. And I think just based on the proximity of New York to Europe, uh, I've been to far more European uh, wine regions, I'm embarrassed to say, than American ones. So I went to Napa for the first time uh, this past March. And I agree with you. I was very surprised by what I encountered. I think the biggest thing that is really surprising, especially when you compare it to European regions, is just like, especially when you drive up the highway. And I forget the name of the highway now. So oh, um, Highway 29. Highway 29. Yeah. It's just like, boom, 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 boom. Winery, 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 winery. It's it's really interesting. So if, if that's your first experience of a wine region, I think it could also, you know, sort of color what you come to expect from other wine regions. And usually, you know, when, we, when you go to Europe or even when you go to uh, wine regions in, you know, the Finger Lakes of New York or, you know, Texas Hill Country, it's not like winery, 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 winery. You know, you you go to a winery, then you have maybe a quarter mile, half mile drive and you go to another winery. Um, this really felt like they are on top of each other. The other thing that really blew me away, and I'd heard about this, but, uh, you know, you don't really understand it till you experience it is just the amount of dollar dollar bills that are mm-hmm. in this region uh these wineries uh these tasting rooms are just like let us show you how much money we make um i think it was impressive you know tasting room after impressive tasting room and so the the ones that are i think trying to do the more diy or indie craft sort of feel almost get dwarfed. I mean, I, I got to, I knew you and I both actually on our, on our separate trips this last year, uh, both got to taste with Kathy Corison and, you know, she's one of like the OGs of, uh, the Napa wine world, like, you know, LeBron's favorite winemaker and her facility, you know, being so really craft and connected to the region really to me feels small compared to the people on either side of her that are these massive wineries owned by massive corporations. Um, And I really did wonder when I was there, like, is the future of Napa just going to be big companies owning lots of these wineries and, you know, billionaire tech investors? Absolutely. Well, we'll talk with Esther about that in a minute because she's better qualified, I think, to answer that question than even you or I are. But I agree with you that there's something striking when you do end up in the wineries that don't feel totally um, sort of devoted to what I guess I would say is kind of the Napa mystique, 
Um, and yeah, Corson is absolutely one of them. Um, Mathiasen's another one that I went to. And they have a little bit more of a connection to what you imagine Napa Valley was like 30, 40 years ago when it was really was America's uh, preeminent wine region, but was still, you know, mostly uh, family owned estates, people maybe who had farmed, if not grapes previously, at least had farmed the land previously. And the people who had come there were people who really wanted to make world class wine, and they could go do that. Um, for a you know kind of out of with no more financial resources than the average person or maybe a little bit more and now if you want to you want to own a winery in napa i mean you better be lebron or something on that par i'm actually kind of surprised he doesn't already uh he will <laughs> like i mean come on he just went he just went to the lakers uh there's a re he said he's there for his uh you know his business interests that are all centered in california and i guarantee you one of those is going to be that he's going to buy a winery i actually like i fully fully believe this i don't it's not a joke i'm not like just thinking it because he likes wine i really this guy is a businessman he is incredibly smart and he's into wine and he's gonna buy a winery just like his boy Dwayne wade has yeah absolutely uh so we're gonna take a real short break and we'll be back with uh esther mobley who's the wine columnist for the san francisco chronicle in just a moment Joining us on the Vine Pair podcast is Esther Mobley. She's the wine columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. Esther, thanks so much for your time. Happy to be here. So let's start with a question about Napa Valley that I think is worth asking, which is, do we still feel like Napa is America's preeminent wine region? Um, you know, in many ways, Napa is is America's most important wine region. Um, and that may simply be because it was the first major American wine region, Um Certainly not the first place to grow grapes and wine, but the first American wine region to really enter on a global stage and whose wines were recognized as being um, as, as world class and as good as any any elsewhere. Um, so Napa, in many ways, I think um, it's certainly the most established wine region. And um, in California, I would say it's the one with the strongest identity. You know, it, um, unlike almost nowhere else in California, um, has really uh, carved out already its kind of palette of grape varieties that um, it's suited for, which to me is such an old world thing to do. I mean, to say that, that this is the premier place to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and I actually think you can't really say that to to such a strong extent about anywhere else in California. So, um, I, you know, I think Napa is always the first um, wine region that comes to people's minds when they think of America. It's and it's it certainly in for that reason is kind of the industry leader. Whether it's uh, the top in terms of quality, I think is a separate question. So Esther, this is Adam. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So in terms of whether or not it's sort of the top in terms of quality, um, wh why do you think that that is that you're that you would make that statement? Is it? I mean, we Jack and I were talking a lot before you joined, just about how many big businesses have come into the region. Like, what would be the reason you see that like the quality has either waned or that other people have potentially surpassed it in quality? Well, um, I, I guess I'm certainly not willing to go out on a limb and say that Napa wines are not. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. Top <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, a, it's an important distinction to say that um, part of Napa's success is its kind of established nature 
it's uh, it's success in creating a brand, and I mean that literally. I mean, it's got its name protected as a trademark um, in a way that few other places in the wine wine regions of the world have. And so I think to some extent we can see the interest in buying Napa land and wineries by larger companies as a result of the kind of success of Napa Valley, the brand. Um, that said, Napa Valley is an incredible place to grow grapes and make wine. Um, as the Napa Valley vintners like to tell you, it's got half of all the world's available soil types. It's this kind of perfect little precious small narrow valley um, between two beautiful mountain ranges. It's infused with this volcanic material. It's, um, you know, basically at its south is the San Pablo Bay. It's got cooling influences from there. It's, it's coastal. I mean, it's not literally coastal, but we think of it in, you know, relative terms as coastal. And, um, I mean, there's no question. I, I think it's, it's a beautiful, perfect place to grow grapes and make wine. Um, but I think Napa's success is now potentially through through some people's eyes also looking like its downfall, which is I guess what we might call its uh, tendency toward hum, like being homogenous at this stage. It's the fact that it has kind of made itself into Cabernet land really so early in its life as a wine region. I mean, we, we consider the modern era of Napa Valley wine to have begun in 1966 when Robert Mondavi Winery opened. That was just over 50 years ago. Um, think about how long people have been growing grapes in Cote or something like that. Um, I think now it's, I mean, how many times a week do you really want to drink a Napa Valley Cabernet Forget the price. Uh, it's you know I wouldn't say it's a very versatile wine, and I wouldn't say Napa Valley is a very versatile wine region. So certainly, as as the palette of American wines becomes more diverse, more colorful, and and people in California and elsewhere in the U.S. are making such an incredible array of different styles of wines, I think it's easy to see Napa as a kind of fuddy-duddy old fart. Hmm. Do you think that there's a case where the sort of preponderance of wine tourism in the valley itself has also had an impact on that? I mean, I, I think about my my visits there and how, you know, some of these wineries, obviously, I guess they make the bulk of their money selling wine, but it really does feel like the sort of the tourist or guest experience drives more than more of the revenue than you might think on, on the face of it. And, and does that kind of change what or, or shape what um, those wineries are intending to do in the first place. Yes, and the consequences of that are much more complicated than most people realize because it affects real estate in a very funny way. I mean, um, well, it's it's a it's a complicated thing to just buy land in Napa Valley to begin with. To plant a vineyard on it, very complicated. To build a winery on it, very complicated. And then to have uh, the ability to host guests is like, you know, incredibly complicated on top of all that. So um, wineries have these permits that usually restrict them to seeing a certain number of visitors per day. In some cases for wineries that maybe are in the hillsides, like not just right on the main stretch of Highway 29 or Silverado Trail, it'll be restricted to like 20 people a day. I mean, they're very particular at this point. And it's 
it's because there's so much um, backlash from people in the community about how tourist-centric the valley has become. I mean, people refer to it as Disneyland, which um, to people who have been to actual Disneyland would seem laughable because actually Napa still looks like farm country. Um, but you're, you're totally right. I mean, the visitor experiences are elaborate. They're huge money drivers. Um, and they seem, I think, to some of us who are maybe purists, like not the, the way you wish people were interacting with wine. But um, now, you know, there was a thing in Napa Valley in 1990 called the Winery Definition Ordinance that essentially expanded the definition of what a winery was. So, um, you know, most wineries in Napa are, are in land zoned for agriculture. Um, you wouldn't be allowed to build like a retail shop in land zoned for agriculture. But the winery definition ordinance said, okay, if you have a tasting room, that can count as part of your agricultural business. So it kind of allowed marketing activities to become part of it. That changed a lot of things and made it, um, made it, I mean, in many ways enabled the tourism industry as it exists in Napa Valley today. And having a permit to see a lot of visitors or to see visitors without a reserve, prior reservation is like this extremely coveted thing. Um, it's really hard to get. And there's a lot of community resistance now whenever anyone wants to uh, open something. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think it is very complicated. And the question is, if Napa Valley is just this tiny resource that is almost entirely now um, mined for vineyards, do you really want like a air tram taking up space that could be used for agriculture or open space? Or I, these are questions that people in the valley really are grappling with. So to to pick up with sort of the idea of the tasting room and the questions people are having in the valley, I think. When I was there um, this past you know, March, one of the things that one of the, the winemakers mentioned to me was just that you know, they've seen the tasting room fee skyrocket. And this idea yeah. that you know, it used to be 10 bucks to go in and taste, now it's 65 or 70 to taste, and they feel like it's become really restrictive to the people that can taste their wines, but they feel this pressure that they have to have a high tasting room price as well, um, or they don't, they're not seen as being high end. Like I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you think about that and what that looks like, especially being in San Francisco with, I would assume a population of people that probably travel to the Valley more than people from New York city do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's similar to the fact of how they price their wine. Someone was telling me who was telling me, Oh, um, I, an employee at Chorus and winery was talking about how, Actually, there was a wine they had that sold for, I don't remember what, $50. I think it was a varietal Cabernet Franc. And uh, they couldn't really sell it. And then they increased the price to $100 and it sold immediately. I mean, there's a total perception of quality correlated to price for wines as well as, I think, for visitor experiences. You know, my friends certainly balk at a $65 tasting fee. And I've seen in many wineries where it's much higher than that. Um, 
And I'm always shocked at the hordes of people who will still line up to do it. Um, and I think people come to Napa understanding that uh, experiencing the wine and buying the wine is a pretty expensive endeavor. But, um, you know, like I'm a young person. Um, most of my friends are in their late 20s, early 30s. And um, you would think you know, $65 just for a tasting, that's a pretty significant expense for most of my peers. But um, I see people spending it all the time. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little shocked. Like in Sonoma, uh, there's a winery called Scribe that um, has done a really good job of, of reaching millennial wine drinkers who maybe weren't that interested in wine before. Their tasting fee is something like $65. And in San Francisco, there's tons of people who go there every weekend or multiple times a month. Um, so it, it is amazing. I mean, there's certainly plenty of money floating around here. Uh, but I think the standard for what, what sounds like an acceptable fee for many people has definitely shifted. You know, you mentioned the proximity of San Francisco and the general Bay Area and obviously all the wealth that's there. And um, I'm wondering, you know, is there a disconnect perhaps between still a lot of the the people in San Francisco who are wine drinkers and, and fairly well off and, and maybe are still interested in um, wine from Napa or maybe, you know, wine from Napa and or Sonoma and the wine industry professionals in the Bay Area? Because a comment I heard from a number of uh, wineries uh, in in Napa when I was there was, you know, like they don't sommeliers and whatnot in San Francisco don't come up there. They don't talk to them. They don't carry a lot of those wines. Mm -hmm. They might have a few wines because, you know, they kind of have to, but they're much more interested in, you know, showing off wines from, you know, um, Bulgaria than they are um, wines from, uh, you know, an hour's drive up the road. Do you, I mean, to some extent I get why, you know, we talked about sort of the lack of versatility in a, in your typical Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, but um, do you get a sense that there's a disconnect between the industry and the, uh, the sommelier community or the wine professional community? And is that, is that a specific to Napa thing? Well, uh, I mean, I could certainly point to a lot of um, sommeliers here who I know have strong, you know, lists that are strong in Napa wines, et cetera. Um, but I, I think in general, the point does stand. Um, yeah, I, I think sometimes there's this sense, there's this bias among California wine professionals against California wine. It's like, it's too easy. It's too obvious. And, um, I mean, I lived in New York, uh, and wrote about wine there before I moved to San Francisco. And in many ways it's the same thing. I mean, there was this total privileging of old world wines over California wines. Um, However, I will say among um, the kind of forward thinking, interesting uh, wine restaurants here in San Francisco, um, I mean, again, it's, it's hard to generalize because I'm sure all of them have some Napa wine on the list. Um, but I think there's a greater embrace of wines from elsewhere in California besides Napa. And, you know, part of it is just because of price. Um, you can really... I mean, Napa wines on a wine list in San Francisco where uh, restaurants have a lot of costs they're dealing with and um, it's not cheap to go out to eat here. You're looking at, you know, a $200, $300 bottle of wine and I, there just can't be that much room for that on every wine list. So speaking again, you know, 
about sort of what's happening in Napa and the money, et cetera. One of the things that I, I'm really interested in is when I was there too, Esther, I didn't see a lot. I mean, I know I have some friends making wine dirty and rowdy, gambling and McDuck, but there's not mm-hmm. a lot of young people going to Napa. Um, do you think that's because it's just super expensive? Like you can't afford to open a winery or there's just more interesting. And I'm speaking, I guess, specifically about other California regions too. Is it just, is it more interesting right now as a young winemaker to go somewhere else in California to make wine? Like, what do you think the reason for that is? Or did I just not see them and young people are everywhere? And for some reason, like I wasn't hanging out at the right bars. (laughs) No, it is. There's a simple answer and it's real estate. Um, land is just more expensive in Napa Valley than, right across the county line in any direction. Um, it is incredibly expensive to to buy fruit there, let alone buy land there. Um, but it's a, it's, I mean, um, it's a vicious circle or maybe a happy circle because um, on the one hand, you the county average for Napa Valley Cabernet, I think this year was something like $7,500 a ton, which we would expect to translate to a $75 bottle of wine. That's average wow. um, in Napa County. So on the one hand, um, you know, someone like Hardy Wallace, who's not making Cabernet anyway, he's, his, he's not going to make probably many $75 wines. His, his mailing list demands more of a diversity of wines, um, or price points. On the other hand, then, the price of Napa land and of Napa grapes makes it so that you really can't afford to grow anything but Cabernet there. You can just get so, so, so much more money for grapes or wine um, if they're Cabernet grown in Napa County than if they're any other grape variety. So you kind of have to be a masochist to not do it. <laughs> and so so then that makes it much less interesting for winemakers like Hardy Wallace to want to work in Napa in the first place. Price be damned. I mean, he wants to find interesting, cool Mervedra. So um, I think part of it, you know, um, Gamaline McDuck is a good example. One of their big... Uh, focuses is Cabernet Franc, and there's some Cabernet Franc in there in Napa. I mean, you know, it's a it's used as a blending variety in a lot of Cabernets, um, and they do make some Napa Valley Cabernet, but they also make Cabernet uh, Cabernet Franc, excuse me, but they also make Cabernet Franc from elsewhere. I think because it's it's also just more interesting to them, um, and you're you're going to find. Cabernet Franc maybe in in greater quantities elsewhere. Um, so I I think the the price of land informs the kind of um, the the kind of homogeneity. And there's so many I know so many young winemakers who live in Napa who maybe make their wine at a winery in Napa, but who buy no fruit in Napa um, simply because where for price, I, again, I'm trying to say it's not just price, although that's a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. It's also just kind of um, diversity of, of great material. Mm-hmm. They don't just want to make another Cabernet Sauvignon, presumably. Yeah. And if they do, I think a lot of them are really interested in Cabernet Sauvignon from other parts of California. Gotcha. Uh, Esther, one last question for you. So we've talked a lot about sort of the, you know, the maybe some of the challenges that face Napa, and especially maybe as 
uh, as sort of uh, presents to our generation who maybe um, don't necessarily uh, want to spend seventy five or a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine all the time, or don't just want to drink Cabernet Sauvignon. But I do want to talk about briefly one, um, you know, kind of maybe the other big challenge facing Napa, which is um, a little bit more on the climate and natural disaster side. Obviously, this last year was um, an incredibly uh, harrowing uh, vintage for for Napa. And due to the wildfires, and, and obviously there's more uh, cost than just to the wine, um, you know, a real personal cost for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, do you do you get the sense that that some winemakers um, are pessimistic about the future, not so much from, a, well, will we be able to keep selling $100 bottles of Cabernet Sauvignon, but will viticulture still be viable in Napa um, in, you know, a time span that, you know, encompasses, you know, our our life? Absolutely. I've had this conversation with um, several winemakers in the last couple of years. You know, the way um, we tend to think of, of uh, growing regions is, um, uh, you know, they're viable for, for growing certain grape varieties only within a certain temperature band. And we know that over time, uh, Napa Valley is getting hotter. And we know that there theoretically will come a point when it's too hot even to grow Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a grape that can withstand some substantial amount of heat. Um, to me, it looks like 50 years from now, would you be able to grow Cabernet in Napa? I don't know. People have, have pointed out um, there's some good news when you think about the fact that um, we can really, well, we, uh, the wine industry can control to some great extent um, the, you know, how their vineyards are kind of oriented toward ripeness by farming. I mean, right now, most of what's planted in Napa is planted on uh, VSP trellising, vertical shoot positioning, which just kind of like, well, it's like a sunbathing mechanism, essentially, for the grapes. And it came about in an era when a lot of vineyards were being planted and a goal was um, a kind of higher degree of ripeness. But um, I think you know, in a way, we still have the infrastructure of an era that privileged ripeness, I think, more than our current era actually does. And so there's certainly ways in which um, we can mitigate the kind of disastrous effects of climate change. And, and there's a lot of research being done on rootstock that will be more heat and drought tolerant. Um, but, I mean, it can, the more you think about it, the more apocalyptic it can really sound. And I mean, you know, uh, there's no fires in Napa County right now, but there's wildfires, massive ones throughout California. And um, I, one of my colleagues here at the Chronicle just reported today that three of the 10 worst wildfires in California history were in 2017. Mm. So, I mean, it's harrowing when you really think about the kind of reality of uh, weather here. I don't know. I wish I had better news. <laughs> oh God. Well, so I don't, I, Esther, I don't want to leave it on, on such a downer note, although I, <laughs> I really do appreciate you, um, you know, joining us. I, I know you're super busy. Um, and so it's really amazing. You're able to take time to join the podcast. I would love to ask you one really quick question, which is if someone is looking to get into wine or understand the Napa Valley, can you name a few producers they should look for? Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of great, great wines being made in Napa Valley. Um, one of my favorites that has been around for a long time and um, really stayed true to a style for a long time um, is Stony Hill. It's not a conventional Napa Valley winery because um, it makes primarily white wines, but um, to me, it makes 
really, really beautiful um, Chardonnays and Rieslings, and they show a really beautiful different side of Napa. Um, I love the Turley wines. Um, they come from vineyards outside of Napa, but they're based in Napa, and um, they make a lot of uh, Zinfandel. To me, they're a great example of wines that are big and rich and um, definitely embrace the kind of ripeness that we can get here, but are always balanced. Um, I also love from Napa the Robert Bialy Zinfandels, um, and they make uh, Old Vine Zinfandel, again, mostly from Napa. So those are examples of kind of maybe slightly unconventional Napa wines. They're, they're not primarily Cabernet. Um, in terms of Cabernet, though, one of my favorite um, new producers to come about in the last couple of years is called Di Costanzo. Um, the winemaker is named Massimo Di Costanzo. And um, to me, he's a great paradigm of, of kind of where Napa Valley at its best looks to be going. Um, still embracing a kind of classic tradition of um, Cabernet, um, but again, in a really beautiful, uh, balanced way that's about structure, not just about fruit. Um, and his wines are under a hundred dollars, um, which in Napa is a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll look for those and maybe, maybe not, uh, Tuesday night wines, but we'll save them for not the most special occasion either. Esther, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Great chatting with you and look forward to, uh, checking out more of your coverage of, um, the wine industry in California at large. Thanks. It's uh, great to talk to you guys. So Zach, that was a really uh, interesting perspective to get from Esther. I'm really curious, sort of, what your takeaways were from that conversation, just based on you know you having been in Napa as well recently. Um, you know, are there things? Did you agree mostly with her? Uh, do you think that there are things that you know maybe she's missing just because she's so close to it? I'm I'm really curious to see what you think. I mean, I think the really interesting thing is this sort of general question as to whether our generation broadly still is interested in Napa. I mean. I went to Napa with my wife and friends of ours who are, you know, same age. And they're they live in Cleveland and they're really into Napa. They've been there before. They and their friends are into um, you know, the wines from Napa, although they drink other things as well. And so I do think there's sort of this this um part of our generation, I guess, that does still kind of revere Napa and that sees those wines as kind of the pinnacle of maybe wine in general or at least American wine. But I do really wonder, you know, you have this combination of maybe less millennial interest in wine from Napa, maybe just purely for price reasons, and some to some extent a lack of winemakers in our age range. And I do kind of wonder if it's going to just relegate in the same way that for a generation, something like Bordeaux was really just like not on the radar for wine drinkers besides, you know, the real kind of classic drinkers. Um, if it's going to do something like that for Napa Valley, where the wineries will still exist, there's obviously a, a, gen a generation or two above us. They often have more money than we do. Um, and so they may keep those wineries afloat for a period of time. But I, I do kind of wonder if there's some some wine uh, wineries and winemakers that are kind of like, you know, are we are we missing a generation here? I should say that flip side, you know, there definitely were plenty of people in their late 20s and 30s in the tasting rooms when I was there. So I could be full of shit. Well, I mean, so that, that's the thing I think I find really interesting too. Uh, you know, when I was there and when I've traveled and just, you know, being one of the co-founders of a national publication, I think we see the same things you do. Our audiences in like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, even really some parts of Chicago aren't as into Napa anymore. But man, when we go to Texas or Atlanta, Georgia, or uh, even Philadelphia, like Napa is still king i think for a lot of people and we even get lots of emails from you know readers in their 
20s and 30s. Like, I'm taking my first trip to wine country. We're going to Napa. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm taking my first wine country, you know, my first trip to wine country. And we're going to, uh, I don't know, like uh, Traverse City, Michigan. Like, that's, you know, like, that's not happening. I mean, and hey, if there are any listeners out there, if there are any listeners out there who who traveled (laughs) from outside of Michigan to Michigan wine country for your first wine country visit, we want to hear from you. Hell, we might have you on the podcast because I would be fascinated to hear about your (laughs) wine experience. But, you know, I, I think it is – there is still a huge allure and the biggest fear that I have and sort of you know, what I wanted to understand from Esther and she sort of uh, corroborated my feelings was that the fear for the region is that I really have not encountered a lot of young winemakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are definitely some, but the only ones that are really there are – but you know what, man? Maybe maybe we're just being curmudgeons because now <laughs> I'm thinking about it, like the ones that are there are the ones that are taking over their families vineyards and it's like the son or the daughter and ah, i guess that's basically all of europe so maybe this idea that like a young upstart entrepreneur is able to come into napa and make really avant-garde interesting cabernet isn't realistic when you think about all the other great wine regions of the of the world like i mean i remember when burgundy used to like apparently lose it and probably still do when outsiders come in and try to set up their own you know vineyards like these have been in these families you know families for generations and so maybe that is the future map, but that it's just going to become, you know, like a lot of historical European countries, famous wine regions where the only people that can afford to keep making vineyards are, I mean, to making wine and owning vineyards are people that either, you know, have lots of money and they can come in and buy out families that are looking, you know, to cash in or people who pass the vineyard down and the winery down from generation to generation. Yeah, it is like, really interesting that there's that. That potential for a legacy wine region um, that isn't that isn't as much the case in much of the rest of the U.S. Yeah, and I think you know maybe it's just our that that, that solar that idea of America that you should be able to go anywhere and you know make anything that causes us to ask these questions of Esther and others like why don't we see younger upstarts like Hardy Wallace and Gambling and McDuck really doing what they're doing in Napa and maybe the answer just is well because. Napa has now become a legacy wine region and these entrepreneurs would be better off going other places if they want to really gain, you know, large national claim. And maybe they can help establish another region as, you know, a hundred years down the road, even 50 years down the road, a premier wine region. Cause I think that's the other big question. Like maybe what we leave the listeners with, you know, um, at the end of this podcast, which is, you know, so Napa's established, right? Like Napa is the region. So like, what's the next big one, right? What's, Mm -hmm. what's the next legacy wine region in the United States? Is it the Willamette Valley? Is it the Finger Lakes of New York with Riesling? Is it just like the next door neighbor Sonoma? I think that's kind of a cop out, but is it, you know, the central coast or is it Paso Robla? What, what is it? I think that's really going to be interesting as our wine culture continues to grow. And as we keep getting really excited about wine as a population, where are the other great regions in this country going to come from? Because they exist. It's, it's, we, we can't be a country as large as we are and say that the only premier winemaking region in our country is Napa. And I think that's 100% true. And I, I look forward to exploring that question in future podcasts. Can't wait. Zach, it was great to talk to you this week, and I can't wait for another conversation. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, We'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now, for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jabal and me. 
Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our executive editor, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.